All right, we've uh, up to Mark 14, um, and uh, I, th- I thought today we'd just actually start with uh, reading the Bible. So uh, we'll start with uh, Mark chapter 14, so if you want to look at it on your own Bibles or uh, your own devices, uh, you're welcome to do that. Um, what I'm going to do today is I might just ask you to stand with me while I read, uh, read the Bible, just as a uh, mark of respect and honour to what we actually believe about what we're reading, um, that it's God speaking to us and we uh, would do well to uh, have an attitude of respect and honour toward that and uh, standing's one way you can actually do that. Mark 14 starting at verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth. It's a very conservative translation of the bible this on the esv very literal so you see a word like stealth there you know there's something sneaky kind of going on and kill him for they said not during the feast let lest there be an uproar from the people now i'm going to skip to verse 10 all right because what we actually have in the passage today is you have two bookends and something right in the middle of it and the bit in the middle of it is a bit that's really important okay but notice the bookends the first one is the uh the chief priests and the scribes were seeking some sneaky way to arrest jesus what's at the other end verse 10 then judas iscariot who was one of the 12 went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them see that Isn't that fascinating they're looking for a sneaky way one of the insiders provides a sneaky way without them having to make any contact with him when they heard it they were glad and promised to give him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him what comes right in the middle of that is this, verse 3 to 9. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. And just pause for a minute there and just think about the nature of what's actually just happened in that room. People with angry, dirty attitudes in terms of their anger and then it comes out of their mouth and they're scolding a woman for this, uh, for this perfume, this ointment. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you'll not always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Why don't you just uh, pray with me as I ask God's help for you and for me. God, we... um, we are easily blinded. We, um, even before uh, the first human disobeyed you, we didn't know everything. We needed you to speak. And that's what you are. You're a, you're a self-revealer. You're a speaker. And your speaking, your self-revealing helps us to know us and it helps us to know you. And even if we didn't have anything wrong with us at all, we would still need you to speak and to reveal things to us and to teach things to us. How much more so, God, now that we have kind of messed up and as Romans 1 says, we embrace lies and get deceived. 
we so much more need you to speak truth and clarity. So today, God, I call upon you. I ask you to bring light uh, in our darkness. God, bring strength to our weakness. Bring strength to, to my weakness. God, you know, you know my heart. You know my struggles over the last few days. And I'm here because you helped me. And we're all here, actually, because you helped us. And so we, uh, we just ask for more help today. Amen. Why don't you grab a seat? You go back to uh, verse 1 there. I just want to highlight a couple of things before we truck on. Just think about this, right? You've got the chief priests and the scribes, right? Now, I'm just going to be a little bit in your face a bit, right? Not about you, but about what this is. This is like the pastors, right? <laughs> this is the pastors. The pastors of Israel are seeking a way to destroy Jesus. Oh, do you get that? Like you kind of get used to the chief priests and the scribes. These are the church leaders. I mean, imagine Jesus came to Toowoomba and there was unity amongst the churches in Toowoomba and they all got together and they all had a, were sitting there and just going, we've got to kill this guy. How can we do it? Like, do you get what I'm saying? Like, that's, that's outrageous. It is absolutely outrageous that God's representatives would get together and be looking for some kind of plan to kill God. And then, you know, you got, you got this at the end of it. I mean, I kind of glossed over it a little bit. But you notice this, when the chief priests heard it, they were what? Glad. Glad. <laughs> like you see, that we, we know the story, right? Because we're getting into the passion, which is the lead up to the cross. So we all kind of know the story really well. But you just kind of got to let that jar you a little bit, all right? Not only have the church guys all got together and worked out, tried to find a plan to kill him, which they couldn't get, not only is one of the insiders, Judas, has come to them with that plan that they were trying to find out, but their response is one of gladness. This is great. This is a good day. <laughs> one of his disciples has come to us and we get to take him down. And I hope you can see here, uh, I mean, Mark quite often in his, in his gospel talks about uh, uses a sandwich technique, right? Where he starts with one thing, he finishes with another thing, and the thing in the middle is really important. And I hope that you can see there that what we've actually looked at today is an incredibly jarring con contrast. You see, the woman's an outsider, isn't she? She's not even named. Do you notice that? She's not even named. She's this outsider that's not even named We'll get to this a little bit later on. They're not in Jerusalem. They're in a town outside of Jerusalem. Whose house were they in? A leper's house. And we'll get to that in a minute. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, there's this whole kind of vibe going on here is that the people who are the insiders are actually the outsiders. And the people who are the outsiders are kind of the insiders. And we're meant to see an acid contrast between faith and treachery in this section. Now, the, uh, the ointment, the perfume was uh, 300 denarii, which was equivalent. A denarii was basically a day's wages, all right? So if you do the maths, we're probably talking about 40 grand. Imagine that. On top of that, we're on the night before the Passover, we think, and the tradition is that Charity happens on that night to poor people. 
Do you see the problem? So you've got this outsider woman kind of shows up and not even told what her name is. It might be Mary, according to John, if it's the same event that John's talking about. Shows up with a $40,000 pot of ointment or perfume and wastes it. Do you notice the contrast here? What's Judas doing in his betrayal? He's making money off Jesus. Do you see that? What's the woman doing? She's giving her wealth and her treasure to Jesus. Jesus became a commodity to Judas. Jesus to the woman was everything. Wasn't she? Wasn't he? Do you know, uh, we know from Matthew that Judas made... 30 pieces of silver from Jesus. All right? As of Friday, I worked out, uh, they think that uh, one piece of silver is uh, equivalent to the weight of a shekel. Silver on Friday was $22 an ounce. Okay? That was the spot price for silver. Uh, Judas made 340 grams of silver. If you do your maths... Uh, Judas profited $264 from betraying Jesus. Look, you've seen the contrast here. Here you've got this woman who's coming in with a $40,000 gift. And she wants to give to Jesus and everyone else wants to take from him. Other people are working out how they're trying to kill him. She's working out how she can anoint him in a sense for his burial massive contrast do you know in exodus 21 uh, verse 32 there's a law uh, about um, what you should pay if you have an ox that gores and kills a servant a slave do you know how much you pay the owner of the slave 30 pieces of silver that's what you pay so do you see here that judas and the church leaders they have agreed the life of jesus is worth that of a slave who's been gored by a bull. What a stark contrast. And I want, to, uh, I want us just to look at, I mean, there's so much stuff in this passage, but I want us to look at four things today. I think in Mark 14 we see the gospel and identity, the gospel and extreme religion, the gospel and its measurement, and three gospel reversals. The gospel and identity. Note this. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon, the what? The leper. Now listen. It's probably true that he wasn't still a leper. Why? Because that would make people unclean who actually went to his place for dinner. But isn't it interesting? Like when you think about identity, he's still being called the guy who had leprosy. Do you see that? It's just like, and maybe he's in there, he's going, hey, uh, Mark, <laughs> if Mark was around, he's going... Actually, can we, there's a red line under that in my word version. Like that's, there's a misspelling there or something. You're not meant to put as a grammatical problem. Don't put leper in there. I'm not a leper anymore. But it looks like he's actually a healed leper. Obviously, he was known to Mark's readers. All right. It's, just, it's kind of like, you know, the Highfields Bakery, the baker down there. Yeah, like John, John the Highfields Baker. All right, people going, oh, yeah, yeah, no, we know John, we know him. But here he's going, uh, Simon, you know Simon? Simon, that guy that had leprosy? 
But isn't this little snapshot in Mark 14 verse 3 a snapshot of the gospel at work, isn't it? How is the gospel at work? The gospel at work is at work because this man had a shameful disease. But, 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 who's at his house? Jesus. Now that, you know, at that point I just go, that'll do me. Like, I don't know, I think, what do you think? Do you think God come and have dinner at your place like that'll do you? Wouldn't it? It's just, some of you going, well, I'd like the iPhone 6S. <laughs> but, no, like, that, doesn't that trump everything? You know, so you're playing cards, like that is the joker. There's only one joker and it's God and if he comes to your place, it doesn't matter what else happened, true? And I wonder, just if we just pause for a little minute here, I wonder how you are identified by other people. How, how have you been identified by people in your life? Are you the divorce lady? Maybe you're the blind guy. You're the guy that had an affair. Maybe you're the guy that doesn't talk nicely to other people. Oh, that's the lady that fell over and embarrassed herself. That guy, yeah, that guy, I know that guy. That's the guy who can't hold himself together. That kid, a friend of mine, maybe was a friend, but they got a cheap mobile. They got a $30 Android. That's that guy. That's that girl. Oh, that's the angry guy. That's the girl who's not very pretty. Oh, that guy, that, that's the guy that can't play sport. That's how other people identify us, yeah? Well, I wonder how you identify yourself. What kind of talk goes on inside of you? Well, I'm, I'm the one that always fails. I'm the one that can never get things right. I'm the one that's not lovable. I'm, uh, I'm the loser. I'm the one who had an abortion. I'm the proud one. One with not much money. The sad one. That's me. I'm, I'm the sad one. I'm the unsuccessful one. Do you know what? This is the gospel, right? Is Jesus wants to come to your place. And if you love him and if you're part of his family, do you know what? He lives in your house. The house of your body. He lives with you. And do you know what? You could actually be someone where every single one of those things I just went through is true of you. And if Jesus is at your place, that'll do. Wouldn't it? That'll do. Do you remember, I hate to reference a movie like this, but do you remember um, the movie Babe? You know, when the, when the, the owner of the pig, what, what, what was his line to his pig when the pig did well? He said, that'll do. That'll do. You know, and there's, there's a sense, isn't there, for us, like we need to just reorient a little bit sometimes. And all of those things can be true. And for us to go, Jesus lives in my house. Jesus is with me. That'll do. That'll do. Enough said. Don't need to say anything else. It's kind of like guilty as charged. Everything about identity is guilty as charged. But I'm going to be like Simon the leper who Jesus comes to his place. So the first point here today is we see is the gospel and identity. Second thing. The gospel and extreme religion. 
And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. You see, nard was in an alabaster flask. Pliny the Younger, who was a Roman lawyer born about 61 AD, has said that the best ointment is preserved in alabaster. See, in the day, women were by and large excluded from careers that afforded the possibility of earning such wages or procuring objects of such value. Now, just think for a minute, how has this woman got something so expensive? Something incredibly valuable. Well, I want to suggest to you uh, something that one of the commentators suggests is that maybe it was a family heirloom. Think about that. Maybe it actually had more value than money. Maybe it wasn't that she just went down the street to Woolies, right? Or maybe not Woolies, David Jones, all right? I'm not selling $40,000 aftershave at Woolies, right? Just in case you know, fellas. Uh, or perfume, all right? Don't go and it's like, hey, I've got a really good deal at Woolies on this perfume, honey. You know, it's great. It was $5. It's just that is a fail, critical fail. <laughs> Quick tip. Ladies, you with me on that? That's right. I've made that mistake once. I talked about a deal I got on perfume. You just don't. Don't do it. So you think then, you just go, right, if it's a family heirloom, what, is, what does it mean? Maybe it's a $40,000 family heirloom. Maybe it sat on a mantelpiece somewhere and it was, don't. That, that is so valuable. Don't even touch it. Just put it there and don't even touch it. Maybe put a cushion on the floor underneath it in case... It, do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's got that kind of sentimentality to it. You know, and I was up last night working on this message. And I just... I, I sense God say to me, what is it that makes you rich, Peter? Because the things that make us rich aren't always just financial stuff, right? It's kind of the sentimentality kind of... You know, there's, there's something. There's like a... Something in your life or a few things in your life where you just go, that, I need that. Like, I, I have to have that. And I'm going to protect that and I'm going to fight for that. And the question came to me as I was sitting working on this last night. Peter, what is the last thing that you anchor to? Do you hear me on that? What, what's the last thing that you anchor to? See, a lot of you probably sit here and you go, ah, oh, 40 grand. If I had 40 grand, I'd give it to Jesus. But if this thing is not just, she went down to the shops and she bought a $40,000 alabaster jar of, of nard, but she actually had something that was really significant, that was a family heirloom, there's probably a sense that for her, if she doesn't have much money, which she doesn't, she's probably at some level anchoring to this thing. Is that fair? And I would ask you today, What's the last thing that you anchor to? You know, we can do it, can't we? We kind of go, oh, I'll give, you know, someone can stand up and kind of go, here's all the things you need to give to Jesus, all right? And we all go, yeah, yeah, I'm good for that and good for that. And I reckon, yeah. But it really comes down to a tussle, doesn't it, with the last thing. What's the last thing? What do you actually need to have to be okay? What anchors you where... If you gave that away, you would feel untethered. Because you know what this lady did? I would suggest to you, she took the thing 
that probably at some level probably anchored her and she gave it away liberally. Probably without spending too much time meditating on whether she should do it or not. And you know what's interesting here is like some of you might be going, oh, Sondergill is on a case again, right? It's telling us we've got to give stuff away. But that would be completely not in line with this whole passage, wouldn't it? Like who's, who's on this lady's bag telling her to give this thing away? Is anyone? No, they're not. <laughs> in fact, they're on a back about giving it away. And that's, that's why I'm up here today and I'm just going, well... See, it's a love thing, isn't it? Doesn't she love Jesus? And people in love, have you noticed that people in love do weird things? Have you noticed that? And like sometimes you can look at people and you can kind of go, you know, sometimes you might even have a conversation with people and you go, oh, that is weird, you know. And then someone near you goes, ah, they're in love. You ever had that one? They're in love. You do weird stuff when you're in love. True? And maybe some of you husbands need to start doing some weird things again. All right? Win your wives back again. But you do weird things when you're in love, right? And she, she loves Jesus. So, let's keep going. We'll just go a little bit more. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Or was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Do you know one thing that is uh, pretty unacceptable in our culture is extreme religion? We're happy to do extreme about lots of things, but just not religion. Our culture doesn't have a problem with extreme wealth, really. Too much wealth, too much power, too much sex or too much influence, do they? It's kind of goes, yeah, smash that out. But our culture has a massive problem with too much religion, don't they? Now, if you think about it, I think part of the reason why is because we live in a, live in a postmodern culture. It's like, if you want that to be true for you, that can be true for you, but I don't want that to be true for you in a way that's going to affect me. Keep it private. Keep your religion private. Keep your love for God private. You see, anyone in our culture who's a fundamentalist, just about anything, that is not a fundamental cause of modern culture is actually frowned upon. All right? So if culture loves something, like I, I think one of the things, as a quick note, that I think is pretty fascinating about our culture, and I noticed it on Australia Day, is has anyone here else, anyone else here noticed how preachy our culture is getting? Like they're getting really preachy. Like I, I don't think we've seen it as preachy as what it is at the moment. People want to get up and make kind of moral proclamations about other, what other people should be doing. It's a little bit kind of strange. So if you're kind of in the slot with something that society thinks is really important and you're really kind of extreme about it, everyone's really happy about that. But as soon as you slip out of those channels, you're in trouble. So I want to just ask you today, how do you go with the constraints that culture puts on you in terms of your love for Jesus? 
Do you know what happens here with this lady? Is this lady rocks in and what does she do? She does it completely alone at the start, doesn't she? I mean, you could just imagine she's in there and she's doing it. You'd reckon out of her peripheral vision, she's seen some looks on some faces. Like she would have been, right? She would have just been going, yeah, I see what you're up to. And then it actually comes into open scorn to her. And do you know, for a split second, she's in free fall because she's on her own. She's busted a $40,000 container of ointment and she's isolated at that moment because she's just done something that you don't do. You don't do that. And I wonder, I wonder, just as a question for you, I wonder how truncated your love for Jesus is because of your concern for cultural sensitivities. With me? No, you don't do that. I really like to do that, but no, you don't do that. What causes your love for God to be moderated? If it's moderated. Is it the shame of it? Is it the opinions of others? Are you stoic? Don't cry and don't show emotion. Emotions are the enemy. Even though there's lots of cultures through the whole of human history that are very open about emotions. I wonder if you've ever thought, and this is not the, um, the measure of everything, but I wonder if you've ever thought in church, I'd like to put my hands up right now, but that would be weird. You know, I mean, it's clear in the scriptures. Like, it looks like the whole thing, raising your hands in worship, is connected to an offering of a sacrifice in the Old Testament. You know, because they would raise, lift your hands, like the evening sacrifice, all right? And so you're offering yourself to God. Aside from that, you go to a, a league game, an origin game, everyone's got their hands in the air because they think there's something glorious going on, all right? So why wouldn't you do that in church? All right, you stick your hands up in the air because there's something glorious going on. What's glorious that's going on the gospel? What Jesus has done and what God's up to and what he's, what he's getting around doing. Have you ever felt stirred up for God and put a lid on it? See, if you have, you've, been, you've felt victim to the whole cultural thing about extreme religion. Have you ever thought, that would be weird? Have you ever been in your house on your own with worship music on? And thought, what are the neighbours going to think if they see me with my hands up in the house and singing out songs to Jesus? What are the people in the restaurant going to think if they see us saying grace before our meal? Am I telling you to go and be weird? Not really. No, that's not my goal. But people who love someone act weird, don't they? So where's, where are you weird? Because you love Jesus. I'm not saying it and have a go at you. I, just, I think that you would have weird stuff. All right? So in some ways, you've just got to just go, no, I'm comfortable with being weird. I mean, Paul kind of said it, didn't he? He said, like, we're fools for Christ. So we're weird for Christ. What stuff do you do that doesn't make sense to other people? Why are they doing that? Well, hopefully somebody, oh, they love Jesus. That's why, ah, that, yep, that makes sense. Does your life look like you love Jesus? 
I'm not saying this is going to be easy, right? It's probably going to be awkward at times. What actually happened in the middle of this is this woman came in with an incredibly intense love for Jesus. And the disciples missed everything that was going on. And I want to ask the question, this takes us to the next point, why, what's happening? <laughs> why, what's the blockage? What, why can something like this happen? And Jesus affirms the woman and says, this is an amazing thing and they are completely missing it. Well, I reckon it comes down to the way that you actually measure religion. That's where we're going now. The gospel and its measurement. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. You know, as a side note, do you know what is, that is just a beautiful three words, isn't it? Can you imagine being her? So it's like she's going, well, I've just been hung out to dry and they're after me. I mean, this is, you know, you talk about social phobia, right? It's all kicking in at this point, right? And you're just kind of going, this is really hard. Everyone's against me. But all of a sudden, the only person in that room that actually counts says, leave her alone. What's he doing? He's aligning himself with her. That's what he's doing. That'll do <laughs> for her, won't it? That'll do. If you've got Jesus with you, that'll do. That'll do. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. You always have the poor with you, rah, rah, rah. What other disciples getting wrong? Well, this is a well-worn path here at the project. What are they doing? They're looking at the deed and they're saying there's something wrong with behaviour. You see that? They're looking at a deed and saying there's something wrong with the behaviour. Behaviour is what makes someone evil. What is Jesus doing? He's saying, no, the behaviour doesn't make someone evil. The heart makes someone evil. So they were working from outside in. He was working from inside out. The disciples judge by appearances. Jesus judges by motives. And just notice here that the scolding of the woman is not just the scolding of her. It's actually a scolding of Jesus too. Do you see that? What do, what, do, what do they say to the woman? This is a waste. You shouldn't have done it. What does that say about Jesus? He's a waste. You see that? And so the two isolated people get together in the room. The sinners, I mean, sin always isolates people, right? It always splits people up. But the two isolated people get together and one of, them, one of them is Jesus and that'll do. See, for Jesus, two small coins are more valuable than lots of coins, aren't they? We did that a couple of months ago. What matters is the heart. What matters is the motive, not the behaviour. Behaviour is important, but only as it flows out of the heart. Number four. Gospel reversals. Now, I'm just going to track back to something I briefly mentioned earlier. This whole story is about outsiders becoming the new insiders. We've, we've read the story, so let me uh, hook in. Here's the first one. Outsiders are the new insiders. You know, you know people say 40s and new 30. You know that? Anyone use that one? Like 60s and new 20? I don't know. 
You can't do that. Truth is, isn't it? No one wants to be an outsider. The problem with being an outsider is you tend to be on your own. There's not much very good company, not much company at all. And then you've got the whole peer pressure thing. What's a peer pressure thing? Peer pressure doesn't just work for high school students. It works for everyone. All right, we call it different names, but it's kind of the same deal. Uh, peer pressure is when there's a threat of being isolated and being on your own and being an outsider. And there's a whole bunch of shame that comes with this, right? Because shame is actually derived from who you're associated with, along with a whole bunch of other things. It's kind of the company, company that you keep. You know, there's a sense like if I get isolated, if I become an outsider and I get isolated from the group, I'm going to get picked off at any time. And do you know what we see Jesus doing here? And Mark's highlighting it. We see Jesus reversing it. See, we all want to be insiders. And the insiders missed it. You see that? And the great hope is if you're sitting here today and you're just going, yeah, I'm an outsider. And the truth is, if you're not Jewish today, there's a sense in which, like, the New Testament would say, you are an outsider. <laughs> you are a random outsider that didn't belong, grafted into the vine of what Jesus has done. But you get grafted in. You're an outsider. But Jesus turns it upside down and brings the outsiders on the inside. You remember Jesus was an outsider? You remember that? Remember they said about him, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's an outsider statement, isn't it? Um, Hebrews 13 talks about how Jesus was crucified outside the gate. He's crucified a criminal. I mean, written off as a psycho by his own family. Remember that? That's, I mean, he's outsider, right? He's outsider all over. And then... You only just have to go through all the things that I mentioned before about we're in Bethany, we're not in Jerusalem, which is outside Jerusalem. Is that a leper's house or a former leper's house? That's an outsider. A woman comes in. It's pretty unusual for women to actually come in and, and interrupt things that are going on there. There's a, and she's not even named, so it's kind of like she's an outsider. Jesus in his coming as an outsider turns the tables and the insiders don't get it and the outsiders get introduced and drawn in second thing is this i completely missed this right who was do you remember what jesus says when they said this money should have been given to the poor they completely missed the poor man sitting right in front of them philippians 2 Verse 6 to 7 says this, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Do you hear that? God is the most rich person that exists, and he poured all of that out to become human. Who was the poor person in that room? It was Jesus, wasn't it? Wasn't he the poor man? And they're going, oh, the money should have been sold for something else. You know, should go down and buy some stuff at Aldi for the poor people. Just going, well, you, you don't even know the poverty that Christ was in at that point. I mean, you've got the, he's on the pathway to the cross, right? I mean, no one's going to be that broke. He loses all of his goodness and his righteousness and takes on all the poverty of the whole world. He is a quintessential poor man, isn't he? 
He will lose relationships. You see, she did give to charity. <laughs> it sounds terrible to say, but she did, didn't she? She did give to the poor. She gave to the man who had lost just about everything and whatever he had less he was left, he was just about to lose. He was the poor man par excellence. You see, the needs of Christ in that moment as a poor sufferer were greater than the poor that will always be with them. And the woman noticed Jesus' incredible worth, didn't she? Even though he was poor, she noticed his incredible worth. And Jesus, in affirming the woman here, he actually places himself above the great commandment to love your neighbour as yourself. Do you see that? He's actually, it's, and this is a bit of a weird one for us, but it speaks to his glory and who he is, right? He's just kind of, she's come along and given this and they've gone, that money should have been given to the poor. And he's gone, no, what she did was right. Because the summary of the commandments in God's eyes is love God, then love neighbor. And he said what she did was right. Jesus asserts his priority over all other goods and things. You see, there's a sense, isn't there, in which the woman is ministering to the poor man, but she's also, in a strange kind of irony, just going, he is inc incredibly valuable. And the insiders didn't get it. <laughs> they didn't see that. I want to read for, uh, I want us to read together Psalm 41, which appears to be a prophetic uh, psalm foretelling what Jesus would do. It's a messianic psalm about a poor righteous sufferer who triumphs over his en enemies. So if you can read in your Bibles if you want or you can read on the screen. Listen to this and just listen to the notes that the psalmist strikes here that sound so similar to, um, to Jesus. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. I mean, you think about the lady, what she, that's what she's doing. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies save me in malice. When will he die and his name perish? I mean, you can hear that note, can't you? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. That should sound familiar to you. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. Remember where this psalm started? Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Isn't it a beautiful psalm? about God's care for the poor man and we can see God doing that as Jesus moves toward the cross and goes through the cross let me just read one more scripture to do with this point 
2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Do you see this? For you know the grace, the generosity, the kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. I haven't got an amen for that. Isn't this exciting? Isn't this good? Jesus was a poor man. Why was he the poor man? Listen to the rest of this verse. For your sake he became poor. Right? Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become what? Rich. The truth is, every human on the face of the planet is a poor human, right? And God's come down and he's taken on human flesh. He's forsaken, in a sense, his wealth. He's taken on poverty, in a sense. On the cross, he took on the extremest of all, the most extreme of all poverty. Why? So that poor people like you can be rich. Who knows they're rich? Who knows they're rich? Yeah, you do, right? Because you are. Like you're really rich. And like if you sit there and you go, well, I'd like another car. That's not rich, right? That's just having another car, right? You probably just have to pay more money to service it. Take it down the street, it'll break down. You'll have to get ROCQ, roadside assist. You're just going to be paying stuff for a car, right? Just go, well, I have another house. Give me an investment house. No, that's not really being rich. Like you want to be friends and in the family of someone who has no input cost. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. There is no input cost for God. He can create anything he wants. Just a word of warning. Just notice again today, and we've seen this most of the way through Mark, notice again today, the closer you are to Jesus, the more dangerous it is. You see that? The people who are really close to him were often the most blinded to what was going on so just a word of warning just be careful just like if you're sitting there and you just kind of go yeah i think i got it you know you know you have you ever think that you have a week or a day or a three second period of time where you just go yeah i nailed that do you get what i'm saying i'm getting it done god's really lucky to have me he wouldn't be able to get anything done without me I was listening to uh, Matt Chandler yesterday and one of the things he said is he goes, if you ever feel like that, he said, just stop for a moment and think about what it would be like if every thought that you had over the last 24 hours was actually broadcast on a screen at the front of church. He said, you're probably not going to swagger as much after that. <laughs> just be careful. I'm just encouraging you. I want to warmly encourage you. Be careful because there's a danger, isn't there, in dealing with amazing things. What's the danger? The danger is that you get used to them, isn't it? Who uh, Just stick your hand up if you came up Kynock today. Like Mount Kynock, came up the road there. Like seriously, just come on, come on guys, it's all right. No one's going to hack on you. Keep your hand up if you just made sure while you're watching the road that you enjoyed the view a little bit. A bit? Do you know sometimes you can go up and down that hill, can't you? Lots of times. And that is a magnificent view, isn't it? Do you enjoy it every time you, you go up and down it? Probably not. Why? Just get used to it. That's the danger of dealing with amazing things. How do you become blasé with amazing realities? Well, I'm telling you, from a guy who works in a church who has to tell people about amazing things, gets the opportunity to do that, it happens. Someone goes, they tell you something about Jesus, you go, yeah, no, all over that. Good. That's great. Yeah, I'm on that. 
Yeah, no, you're right. That's that truth. Yeah, yeah. This is the one you need in your life. You know, and you can you can end up just becoming someone who knows how to orchestrate things and knows how to plug, you know, powerpoints in the sockets. You know, in the sense that you just grab a truth and you stick it where it needs to fit, and you kind of think it's doing something. All of a sudden, you're just going, "What? The, what am I even doing? What am I even doing? Do I even really?" You know, and like I could say to you this morning, I go, Jesus died on the cross for you. And you, a whole bunch of you on the inside, if you're anything like me, you just go, yeah, I know. Going, well, no, you don't. All right, I'm sorry. But you actually don't know. You actually don't know how amazing that is. And that's an example of something that just gets tired. Not because it's tiring, but because you get bored. Because I get bored. Because we just get blasé with amazing things. So just be careful. All right. Here's the last one. Here's where I want to finish. The fruit of divine loneliness. Do you know, and uh, I'm just going to take you through this in a minute, that chapter 14 of Mark chronicles the desertion of Jesus. All right, let me take you through a few. Let's start at the top. This is not a good start, right? If you're talking about being abandoned, the church guys want to kill you. (laughs) All right? Like if I came to church today and I found an elders meeting and the, you know, the other elders are all getting together and they're going, we want to kill Peter. Like that's not a good start to a day. Is everyone cool with that? Like that, you just got to go, I thought we were on the same team, but at that point you're going to be going, I'm not sure. I need to ask a few questions because that's weird. Normally people on the same team don't kill each other. That's normally how it rolls, right? So here's the start of Mark 14. And then we actually get to uh, Mark 14 verse 4 to 5, which is what we've been looking at today where there's a lady aligning herself with Jesus and they take the opportunity to not align themselves with Jesus. You know, there's a sense in which there's an abandonment kind of happening there. And then we get to verse 10 of Mark 14 and we hear about Judas, one of the insiders. What's he doing? Well, he's abandoning Jesus. And then at the Lord's Supper, you know, it's, you know it looks like it's going well. And then, you know, Jesus being a party pooper like he is, a lot of the time, he gets to the end, what does he say? He goes, listen, we've been having a good time, guys. Thanks for the meal. It was lovely. Bread was nice. Meat was great. Listen, one of you is going to betray me and get me killed. Just like, man, do you kind of, can we just end on a positive note? All right. But there's a sense even in a meal that Jesus is going to get betrayed and he's going to get uh, isolated and alone. And then you get to this uh, interchange here in uh, mark 14 30 to 31 where the disciples are just firing up they're going we're never going to desert you and jesus goes yes you will they're going no we're not yes you will peter goes listen i'll die for you he goes no you won't what happens at the end there in verse 31 and they all said the same we're not going to leave you and jesus is going no it's coming i know it's coming um you're going to get hit by a truck that you don't even know is coming and then we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, don't we? In 1437, Jesus came and what were they doing when he was freaking out, sweating drops of blood? What are they doing? Sleeping. He's alone. I mean, he's got people, but he's alone, isn't he? The people are not really with him. And then at the end of that session, I think that happens two or three times, and then at the end of that session in Mark 14, verse 30, 45 and 50, what happens? Oh, the soldiers come and Judas came. What does he do? He kisses him and calls him teacher. Like just, I mean, you want to stop there for a minute, all right? It's one thing to have a guy that wants to kill you. 
It's a whole other thing to have a guy that wants to kill you and he's going to do it by calling you a teacher and then giving you a kiss, a sign of affection. And some of you kind of know that, right? I mean, I'd, I've seen it with my parents uh, in the church, you know. I mean, my parents worked in the church for a long time and people come up, people used to come up to them at the end and they knew, they knew that those people were stabbing them in the back all the time and they would come up to them and they would kiss my mother on the cheek and give her a hug and not even talk about it. I mean, that, that's bitter, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing, someone's out to get you, it's a whole other thing when someone's out to get you and they gloss over it, they, they do something that seems to speak in, in, the, in the opposite direction. And then there's a bit of a tussle, isn't there? I mean, this is a crazy verse, I don't even know what it means, maybe we'll work it out when we get there, but... You know, so in here, and, the, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. All right? And what does that mean? I don't know. But all I know is that a dude would rather run off naked than be with Jesus. All right? Let's just say that. And then he gets tried. The high priest gets in there. The high priest is the top dog. He's the top representative for God. He serves for a year normally. He's, he's supposed to speak for God. What's he doing? Well, he's trying to work out how to kill him. I mean, that's by definition, Jesus is pretty alone at this point. It's like he came to his own. His own didn't receive him. The church was meant to be the champion of what Jesus was up to and they just wanted to take him out. By definition, I think we can say that's being alone. And then you get into uh, Mark 14, 71 to 72. Peter denies Jesus to a servant girl. And then to cap everything off, in Mark 15, verse 34 and 40, on the cross at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see what's going on here? The full effect of isolation and abandonment and loneliness has had its effect on Jesus. Finally on the cross, he is the quintessential lonely man. There's no one else. I mean, you can see there in verse 40, there were kind of some women there, but they weren't even that close, were they? It just says that there were some women there and they were looking from a distance. I mean, just imagine if, imagine what it was like to be Christ. In the woman's act, she was alone. She was alone and criticised. But she wasn't alone, was she? Because Jesus came in and aligned himself with her. In her isolation, he moved toward her. And when she had him, she had the world, didn't she? You see, sin always isolates and brings about abandonment. And the only way for the effects of sin to be reversed is for someone without sin to be isolated and abandoned and go through it to the end. That's the only way it can happen. You see, it was only because Jesus was abandoned and forsaken that he can say to us, I will never leave you nor forsake you.